Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This episode of the program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. And this is a partnership between Utah Humanities, Utah Public Radio, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Uh, our thanks uh, to Ron Chernow, and uh, we now are uh, bringing in another distinguished uh, historian, H.W. Brands. Uh, is uh, holds the Jack S. Blatton Senior Chair in History at University of Texas at Austin. He writes on American history and politics. His books include The Man Who Saved the Union, Andrew Jackson, The Age of Gold, and TR. Several of his books have been bestsellers. Two, Traitor to His Class, and The First American were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. H.W. Brands lectures frequently on historical and current events and can be seen and heard on national and international television and uh, radio. And I noticed a couple of uh, very interesting articles recently in Politico. One of those was titled, How Trump Has Proved the Founders Right. We'll talk about that as well as a project. H.W. Brands has been writing the history of the United States in haiku form, publishing it on Twitter. H.W. Uh, Brands, welcome to the program. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me, Tom. So let me let me jump into the Electoral College. I want to bring the history forward to today as, as you're doing in this article, uh, which, which I found in uh, Politico, Politico magazine. Um, so uh, you're saying that, I guess, if worst case scenario, uh, Trump gets elected by popular will, but the Electoral College feels like he isn't an appropriate president. They still have the power, you're saying, to to uh, to, to not elect him? Constitutionally speaking. They do. And the basic point that I was making in the piece was that Donald Trump is the kind of candidate that the founding fathers warned against and wrote their constitution against. They had seen the operation of democracies in other places at other times, and they believed that they inevitably descended into anarchy and riot, usually followed by some kind of despotism. And the basic problem was that some demagogue, and they would have used that term sort of in its Greek sense, of somebody who could pander to the masses, would be able to sway the votes of people who were not particularly educated on political affairs, and would amass their votes and gain power by that means. The founders were unabashed elitists, and they believed that people of property, people of education, people of civic spirit were the ones who ought to run the country, and not the riffraff of America. Now, needless to say, most Americans today disagree with that. But my point was that we often look to the founders for guidance. And whether one wants to follow their advice today and and say and hope that the Electoral College should choose somebody other than the popular victor or whoever it might be, that's a separate matter. But they did see that there are problems in democracy. Yeah, you, you quote Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 1, um, the fiercest enemies of the Republic, Hamilton said, are those men who begin by paying an obsequious court to the people, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. And John Adams says this, it soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself, talking of popular rule. So, yeah, they had a, they had a, a big, uh, they were very skeptical for good reason, right? Yeah, well, it's very interesting that democracy took hold in the American political conscience and culture about 1820 or 1830 thereabouts. Really, the Andrew Jackson, the election of Andrew Jackson signified that ordinary people were going to determine the political fate of this country. And we spent the last 200 years sort of expanding the democracy. Who are these ordinary people who will actually rule? But ever since Jackson was elected, it has been essentially taboo 
to criticize democracy. You can't, you will never find a candidate for office saying that, you know, I don't think ordinary people should vote. Now, there's a good reason for this, because they would be, in effect, insulting the people whose votes they are soliciting. But about the only way that one can even raise questions about democracy and whether the people always get it right is to hark back in American history to the founders, because people will pay attention to the founders. Uh, and they could criticize democracy, although on this one, um, their, their vote, their views, seem to have been largely set aside. As you mentioned, it's been a kind of a long, slow progression uh, 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 toward uh, more, more pure democracy, right, to direct elections, um, and uh, somewhat to turn it back a bit. I'm thinking about a debate in Utah. Some legislators want to... Um, revoke, I can't remember which amendment it is, the popular election of senators, and take it back to the legislatures. I guess that's sort of the same impulse. Oh, yeah. very definitely. Part of the reason for the Electoral College in the first place is it applies to the presidency. And this actually applies to the selection of senators as well. There was a feeling that it would be impossible for ordinary voters to actually get to know the candidates. Because in those days of limited mass media, how, what would a voter in Georgia know about a candidate from Massachusetts. It was expected that the electors would know, or at least know people who did know, the candidates for president. And that was part of the reason for putting in there, simply um, a way of kind of getting better information about the candidates. But there was also a very self-conscious way of sort of filtering the popular will. In those days, in fact, when the electors were chosen. Most of them were not originally chosen by the people of the states. They were chosen by the legislatures of the states. And so there was a double filter there. And again, it's partly a matter of knowing these people, but partly it's a matter of kind of distilling or sheltering the, the selection of the office holders from the passions of the masses. And there was a general feeling that ordinary people were more swayed by their passions than the people who took the time to become expert on this. Uh, of course, um, th this idea that, that democracy should rule, uh, the people should rule, uh, that's very attractive, isn't it? Um, oh, well, it's certainly flattering to ordinary people, and it's, it's flattering to all of us. I mean, the best thing that democracy has going for it is legitimacy, and that is if everybody gets to vote, then you minimize the number of people who can complain and say that I didn't have a stake in this. And you know, democracy has become, I'm not going to say it's become the rule around the world, but it's certainly gained a lot of ground since the early 19th century. And there's this then sort of expansion of political participation and the idea that this is indeed the appropriate way of doing it. And I'm certainly not saying that this country ought to turn back the clock and go back to the time when only rich white men who had lived in the same place for a long time could vote. But it is worth sometimes asking the question, what does democracy do well, and what does democracy do poorly? And I mean, one of the things that's happening already is that the Republican Party, at least the leaders of the Republican Party, are clearly trying to rein in the primaries as the way of choosing their nominee. And there are lots of them who are hoping that Donald Trump in particular does not get an absolute majority by the time he gets to the convention in Cleveland, because then 
the convention will step in. Well, the convention, the founding fathers had no idea of political conventions because they had no idea. In fact, they had a great hostility to political parties. But the way the conventions operate, and they operated this way for 100 years, from the early part of the 19th century to the early part of the 20th century. Again, these were the people who, who had a permanent stake in the fate of the party and a permanent stake in the fate of the country and the selection of candidates. And so they were the ones who were assumed to have the better judgment as to what nominee can our party put forward who will best exemplify the interests of the party and then presumably become the best president of the United States. And the idea that you would hand off that decision-making power to people who might or might not show up at the polls on primary day, that seemed like a, a bad idea. But it was an irresistible idea by the early part of the 20th century because the idea of democracy has basically defeated everything in its path. And it's, it's why the, the vote gets expanded and why more people participate and why there will be a great deal of annoyed primary voters if Donald Trump should get the most votes in the primaries, if not a majority, and then be denied the nomination. What do you think would happen in, in today's day and age if the electors in the Electoral College did countermand the, the will of the people? Ah, so if the Electoral College overruled, now, that would be a really interesting one. There would certainly be challenges. The, whichever party lost the White House would raise a challenge. On what grounds would they raise the challenge? The, they, they, there's no constitutional basis for this. What they probably could say is that it has been the practice for the last 150 years that electors will choose the person that their state, either the state voters or the state legislature, um, instructs them to choose. But they would have to find grounds other than the Constitution of the U.S. Do you... And there would, there would certainly be a political uproar, but I'm not sure that there would be more political uproar necessarily than followed the, the choice of George W. Bush over Al Gore. When Al Gore got the popular majority, clearly, and Bush won uh, a Supreme Court-assisted electoral majority. So we're, with respect to the, the choice of presidents, we're caught with up in the sort of the rhetoric of democracy, but there still is there still is this constitutional filter. Now it no longer acts the way it was designed to act, but it does in it does mean that the candidate who gets a majority of the votes of the people will not necessarily be the president. Uh, ben Carson, I noticed, is recently saying he he wondered. He's speaking for Donald Trump, uh, or, or a spokesman surrogate for Donald Trump. He says, "Why do we need the Electoral College anymore?" This is uh, a, a question I think that a lot of people have. Do you think we still should have it? Well, I'll say, I'll say it falls in the category of things that if it didn't exist already, no one would think of inventing it today, because almost nobody else, almost no other country, has anything like this. Um, the biggest criticism of the Electoral College is that there are times, uh, just a handful of times in American history, that it frustrates the demonstrated will of the voters. The advantage of the Electoral College, however, is that it magnifies small margins of victory in the popular vote to substantial margins of victory in the electoral vote. So it gives somewhat greater legitimacy to someone who might win by 52 to 48 percent but they'll, they'll get 75% of the electoral vote, which it makes it look a little bit better. I'm not sure that in reality it changes anything. But it's in the Constitution, and it serves the interests of small states because they're overrepresented, and it serves the interests of states 
that are perceived as political battlegrounds. So candidates will come to states like Florida and Ohio. Candidates don't bother coming to Texas because it's reliably Republican. And so in that sense, I mean, I have to say, when I'm speaking candidly to my students at the University of Texas where I teach, that, you know, individually they're sort of disfranchised because collectively Texas has been for the last 30 years and will probably be for the next 20 years solidly Republican. So it almost doesn't make any difference when they go to the polls. And furthermore, they cannot expect a visit from one of the, the candidates in the general election because everybody knows already how Texas is going to vote. We're talking with H.W. Browns. He holds the uh, Jack S. Blatton Senior Chair in uh, History at the University of Texas at Austin. He writes on American history and politics. Uh, his books include The Man Who Saved the Union, Andrew Jackson, The Age of Gold, uh, T.R., uh, several books have been bestsellers. Two, Traitor to His Class and The First American, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, he's uh, speaking with us for the, for the rest of the hour. We have about five minutes left. And uh, H.W. Renz, I, I want to get to this very interesting project. You're writing a history of the United States in haiku, publishing it on uh, Twitter. Or tweeting it, I guess, is the, I don't know what the proper word right. is. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Why? Why a haiku <laughs> history? Well, it came about because... For years, I had been giving my students guidelines as to how to format their term papers. And I'd give them a format and say, this works pretty well. But I would say that, you know, there, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. And if you think you've got a really original way of writing your term paper, go ahead. I said as a throwaway line, if you want to write your term paper in the form of haikus, go, do it. And so one student piped up and said, Professor, have you ever written history in haiku? And I said, no, no, I have not. So I got to thinking about it. And it was just about this time that Twitter was coming to be popular with my students as a form of social media. And I thought, you know, I could sort of broadcast history to my students in these short bursts because haikus fit quite easily, into the 140-character limit for Twitter. And so I started doing it. I've been doing it now for about five years, and it's, um, it's an interesting and enjoyable sort of sideline to what I do. The number of my followers has grown, and I, I'm, I like to think that they can't wait to get their daily dose of haiku history, um, and I guess I'll keep doing it. I've, I'm running into a bit of a problem, though, in that, that history seems to accelerate the closer I get to the present. So I'm, in, I'm into the 1960s now. Or, yeah, 1960s now. But the future is a, excuse me, the present is a moving target. And the one concern that I have is that, well, Twitter, five years ago when I started, was something all my students used. Well, tastes in social media change. And relatively few of my students use Twitter anymore. <laughs> so yeah. if I stay on Twitter, I might lose the originally intended audience, if I switch, I, I don't know exactly what I'm going to switch to, but um, we'll see. But for the moment, yes, it's at HW Brands on Twitter. At HW Brands on Twitter. Uh, let me just read yes. one of these. Uh, pretty good, I thought. A dismal conflict, dashing vainglorious hopes, embarrassing all. That's the that's your uh, haiku on the War of 1812. Yes, I'm afraid so. Uh, well, no, I actually, thought it. I thought it. Some, you know, that's that. It, it, yeah. You can pack a lot into those. Uh, well, as, into those, and as a matter of fact, sometimes com- I give my students uh, writing assignment. I will say, okay, so summarize 
uh, it could be the election of 1896, or summarize the, the March on Selma in a haiku. And I'll just have them right there in class. So I'll give them 10 minutes to write a haiku. They generally find the exercise most enjoyable, and they produce some good stuff. What do you think it does for them? What do you What do you think it? Uh, I guess you you have to distill a lot uh, into those seventeen syllables, and that means you have to you have to think it through. Exactly, and and because of the nature of haiku, it's more impressionistic than it is narrative. And so I tell the students, you have to decide what emotional effect you want to convey. And so with that one, you quoted on the War of eighteen twelve. Yeah, there was this feeling in America, that this was a dismal war, and we wish we hadn't gone to it. And so, if whatever they choose, I, have, I ask them to think about, what do you think the American people, or whatever segment of the American people you're writing about at the time, felt about this? Because haikus are much better at conveying kind of emotion than they are a sort of carrying a story forward, which is kind of a challenge to the historian at times, because there are things that you need to narrate, which is why when I was doing the the Apollo program, the moon landing, I broke it up into, I think there were probably 10 or 15 haikus. Mm. You're, you're, but, so you, but when Neil Armstrong lands on the moon, you know, there's that moment where, mm-hmm. you know, you can capture the moment of the age. Yeah, yeah, certainly true. And you say you're up to the 1960s now? Yeah, I'm doing the, well, the countercultural movement, the hippie movement in the summer of love in San Francisco. All right. You can check out H.W. Brown's uh, American History in Haiku Form on Twitter and uh, many books uh, to read. The, the website is hwbrands.com. And we're out of time, so I'll just have to refer people here. Brands Laws of History, Idiosyncratic Observations on Humanity's Crooked Path. Very interesting uh, there. H.W. Brands, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Tom. Uh, and uh, coming up tomorrow, hope you'll uh, join me for a conversation with uh, NPR reporter Barbara Bradley Haggerty. She's out with a, a new book on midlife, Life Reimagined, the Science, Art, and Opportunity of a Midlife. She says there's no such thing as the inevitable midlife crisis. Uh, it's a hopeful book. She says midlife crisis is a myth and an illusion. And uh, she'll take us into new scientific research, exploding the fable at midlife's time when things start to go downhill for everybody. Barbara Bradley Haggerty coming up uh, tomorrow. Our thanks to uh, our guests uh, today on the program. And a reminder that this episode of Access Utah is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. It's a partnership in Utah with Utah Humanities, Utah Public Radio, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Recycling has become a practice many incorporate daily in their homes, and private solar panel sales are on the rise. But what else can we do in our homes to improve its energy efficiency? Whether you're a renter or an owner, we want to know your tips and tricks on how to keep your energy bills low and your homes environmentally friendly. Join our latest UPIN conversation at upr.org and join us next Wednesday night at 6 p.m. at Logan City Hall for April's Green Energy Futures meeting. The Venezuelan economy is getting clobbered by low oil prices and hurt as bad as anybody? Venezuelan ranchers. When we see those lines, it's not because we as producers just not want to supply them. It's that we don't have the conditions to do so. I'm Kai Rizdal, Big Ag and Big Oil. 
in Venezuela. That's next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio.